You all know how much I love my Organifi, and I think it's a toss-up about which is my favorite, but Organifi Harmony is just my go-to as the weather gets colder. Every single morning, I just look forward to my hot mug of Organifi Harmony. Organifi Harmony was created to support women specifically. It combines 12 superfood ingredients into a delicious cacao and chocolate flavor blend that promotes better balanced hormones every day for improved women's health. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition and high-quality ingredients in less than three grams of sugar in every product, helping you move from a depleted to nourished state. Just add water, or I like to add warm almond milk. Stir with a spoon and enjoy any time for more energy, nutrition, hormone balance, and peace of mind. It's a great way to jumpstart your morning, energize your afternoon, or nourish your evening. And the best part is that you can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank, with a price that works out to less than $3 a day. Head over to www.organifi.com slash best of you and use code best of you for 20% off your entire order. That's www.organifi.com slash best of you. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Allison and I'm so glad you're here to discover what brings out the best of you. This podcast is all about breaking free from painful patterns, mending the past, and discovering our true selves in God. I can't wait to get started as we learn together how to become the best version of who we are with God's help. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Best of You podcast. I'm so glad you're here for this final episode in this series on Faith Talks. Today's guest, Esau McCauley, is the author of a brand new memoir, How Far to the Promised Land. I've been listening to this memoir. I love the genre because I feel like memoirs give us insight into people's lived experience, right? It's the story of their lives. And Esau is a New Testament theologian and scholar, but listening to the story of his life really helps connect the dots to some of the Bible teaching that he's also known for. It's such a powerful book. It's a beautiful story. It's well-written. It just draws you in. But as I was listening to the book, I thought this is really a story of forgiveness. And Esau acknowledges in our interview today that that is right. It really is, although he doesn't necessarily say that up front. And if you missed last week's episode, go back to the beginning of that episode, and I talk about different types of forgiveness. And when I'm talking about forgiving others, I talk about how sometimes we have to forgive others who hurt us and, you know, they apologize and change. And sometimes we have to forgive others who maybe acknowledge the hurt, but they don't ever really change. And sometimes we have to work through a process of forgiveness when people never acknowledge the harm that they've done. And then sometimes we have to work through a process of forgiveness when a group of people or a culture or a community harms us without ever acknowledging the wrong. There are all these different ways that we have to wrestle with forgiveness in our own lives, right? Remember, forgiving doesn't mean continuing to put yourself in harm's way. It means working to release resentment and anger in our own hearts for our own good spiritually and emotionally. 
And so as I was listening to this memoir, I thought I need to have Isa on the podcast to talk about his experiences because there's just such a beautiful tone throughout this book. He does not shy away from naming what's hard and the really hard, traumatic abuses that he encountered in his own home, at the hands of his own father, and some really hard things that happened to him at the hands of the culture at large growing up. He talks about those things even as he talks about the goodness of God. And you can just tell that he is someone who has wrestled deeply with this idea of forgiveness. He is not shying away from what's hard, even as he's wrestling with his own healing and doing his own work. Esau McCauley is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. His articles have appeared in Christianity Today, Religious News Source, and the Washington Post. And his book publications include Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, Reading While Black, and his brand new memoir, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. I hope you will check it out. You will not be disappointed. It is such a great read, and I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Esau McCauley. So this is exactly why I wanted to have you on, Esau, is that you're a New Testament theologian and scholar. Supposedly. And then you write this memoir that's your lived experience, and they're both powerful, and they both matter, right? And you talk about that in the first part of the book, the introduction. You're like, when people ask you these questions about racism or whatever, you're like, you need to know the whole context. I love that. Well, I think that sometimes when we arrive at adulthood— and maybe people see us, we go and speak places, we have nice outfits on, and at least for me, I'm shaved and all of the things are put together. They kind of think, oh, you're a Christian because Christianity worked for you. That things went a certain way in your life and that, you know, Jesus kind of makes everything kind of go. And they may sometimes extrapolate from the present picture that they see and suggest that we're only Christians because God is helping us in a way that is visible and material. And I want to say, well, no, 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 you met me at this point in my life. But God met me a lot earlier. And in order to understand what I say now about God, you need to understand how God was there from the beginning of my story and through the generations of people in my family. And so you're right. It's a much different kind of writing process. But I think it's more along the lines of saying these accounts that I give about God and the Bible and Scripture and these things aren't simply intellectual. They're also deeply personal. That's right. They're lived. They're experienced. And so the book is not explicitly about forgiveness, but I saw that thread all the way through it. And I also wanted to tell you, Esau, my husband and I were just talking last week about how we'd never heard a sermon about Esau, yeah, the character in the Bible. And I'm getting to the end of your memoir, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you connected those dots of this yeah. Esau who forgave. And take my listeners back, Esau, you tell many stories in such a beautiful way. It's a beautiful book. It's insightful. Like you said, it's not heavy-handed. You tell your story as it is. But there are these moments that you describe. The first one that stood out to me was a moment— when you were a little boy, and I think I thought about trauma, I think about how we talk about trauma on the podcast as unwitnessed pain, as something that happens, especially as children, that goes deep inside where there's not an adult there to help us make sense of it. And you talk about these moments of being hurt that you internalized without necessarily having an adult there or a father there to help you process those. So tell me a little bit about that younger you. So it might be helpful for the listener. They haven't read it. I'm going to put the book into a bit of context, and I'll try not to ramble too long. In 2017, my father passes away in a single-car accident. He was a truck driver 
heading back from California back to our family. And we don't actually know what caused the accident. He just dies. And it quickly becomes clear that my family wants me to do the eulogy for my father. And that was tricky because my father, he struggled with addiction throughout most of his life. And so he was in and out of our family, in and out of jail, in and out of our lives. And that kind of absence created its own sense of trauma and brokenness. And so now I'm tasked with this idea of telling his story. Because a eulogy is an attempt to tell someone's story and tie that story to the wider purposes of God. And so I was really struck with this idea, but how can I tell the story of someone who I don't know? Which really leads to me sitting down with friends and family who knew him, relatives who were alive when he was a child, to get an idea of who he was. And that process, though, of returning to his past caused me to return to my past. Because his story and my story aren't easily separated. And so when I began to write the book, the book kind of has two versions of the perception of my father. The perception of my father that I had as a child, and then the perception of my father that I developed later after I learned his story. And so one of the stories that I tell early on in the book is, it's in the chapter called The Making of a Villain, is because when my father came home, when he was high on drugs, he would often become violent and abusive. And I talk about what it's like to be in that room afraid and praying to God that God might be there to rescue us. And in one of the stories, the police are called and he comes in, he's sent off to jail. But the next morning, I have to go to school. And the question is, and I misbehave in this school. I get in trouble. And so the teacher's asking, why is this person misbehaving? Why is this child doing these things he or she shouldn't do when they know that they should be listening to what I say? It's because I was so hyped up on adrenaline, I couldn't focus. But I also didn't have the tools to explain to the teacher my family life is chaotic, so I don't care about anything you're trying to teach me in this class. And so that idea of the person who you want to love you the most is the person who causes you the most pain. Because when you're a kid and like something bad happens, who do you run to? Well, you run to your parents. What happens when one of your parents is the person who's doing the bad thing? Or what happens when your mom, who's also dealing with the trauma from having an abusive husband, I can't go to my mom and talk to her. So a lot of this stays inside for a long period of time. You're saying that so well. And I so appreciate what you're describing, those moments where you don't know. You don't know how to give language to. And so you internalize, I would think, even some shame. You're getting in trouble. Throughout the story, there's this sense you're a pretty good kid. You're trying to do the right thing. But you don't know how to make sense of these things. Yeah, I think you're really afraid because you don't want anybody to know. Like you go to school and you kind of walk around and you think, can people see it on my face? And so it's not just the difficulties of what's happening to you. That's its own trauma. But the trauma that there's no one you can share it with. That's exactly right. Is a double pain. And so I talk about this in the book is that as far back as I can remember, it's actually been a tricky part of me becoming an adult. As far back as I can remember, I didn't have any career goals. I never had career goals. Like I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I didn't really care. I just wanted to be a husband and a father. Because as a kid, I had an awareness that what was happening to me wasn't good and that it was kind of damaging me in a certain way. And so I wonder what would happen to a kid if from the moment they were a child all the way through they became an adult, they had a parent who loved them. And I wonder what would happen to a woman if her entire life she had a husband who thought she hung the moon. And so before I even, when I thought girls are gross in like middle school to elementary school, I had in my idea, almost like a lab experiment, 
what would it be like to be in a house that was different than the one that I was in? And so in some sense, like the trauma turned me inward because like I said, I couldn't share with anybody, but it also shrunk down my goals. My entire life, only wanted to be a husband and a father. It was funny, yesterday I was playing basketball with my son and we had just bought him some new shoes. They were like 40 or 50 bucks, but they were the Giannis Antetokounmpo shoes. And they came in the mail and he's like, I got the Giannis. It doesn't matter if it was the last season. Well, he doesn't know. He's like eight years old, nine years old. Don't get mad if I give him his right age. And he went outside and we have a little goal in the backyard. You could tell that he was trying to do moves that he couldn't normally do, but he thought I got new shoes on. And so <laughs> he just wanted to play, right? He wanted to play with his dad. And like that moment, it was such a joyous, untroubled moment. He's just a kid thinking he can play basketball like the guy he saw on TV. And in a lot of ways, those moments that I have with my son are both very poignant, right? He doesn't understand why dad is so emotional when he's just playing basketball. But for me, it reminds me of, I really thought to myself, this is all I ever wanted. I just want to see a kid be happy. And so I think that in the first part of the book, which the writing is even trying to reflect that reality, I'm trying to describe what is it like to see the world through the lens of a kid who's undergoing like particular traumas. And so even the writing and the way that the language, the book is written, I tried to simplify the prose because I tried to think about how it felt as a kid. Obviously, there's the complex memories have developed, but there's a certain sense in which I know what it feels like to be that young kid in that place. You feel that when you're reading it. It's so well written. You don't walk us through how you see it now. You put us in those shoes. I want to touch on what you just said. It's You're describing so beautifully almost what we talk about in the therapeutic world as reparenting, where there's a sense of you're reparenting your own younger self as you're allowing yourself the taking in that moment with your own son. That's beautiful. Like, it's funny. I'm trying to do my best to avoid reparenting. Because when one of the other things that I've noticed is that with my daughters, it's a totally different experience. Because with my daughters, I don't know what it's like to be a young girl who's looking for a dad. It feels like the memories don't stack in the same way. So I feel freer in my parenting of my daughters. And with my sons, I've tried very hard to allow them to be them and not to undo my past. In other words, like I'm a big sports person. I was playing sports growing up. My oldest son, he runs track, but athletics isn't his entire life. He actually is in the scholastic bowl. That's what he does. And he's really good. It's like varsity. And, you know, he's amazing. And so I go to his scholar bowl things and I can't cheer it on because you got to be quiet. But I try to embrace him as him instead of saying he needs to be what I wanted him to be. Because when I was a kid, I wanted my dad to go to my football games. My son's school doesn't even have a football team. And so I've tried to do my best to unburden my children from the responsibility of undoing the things that I did. That's right. And to embrace them as unique joys, which isn't always easy, right? Because the feelings always come, right? They always come. And you can't completely avoid it. But being intentional about saying, he's not me and I'm not my dad. That's right. And two things can be true simultaneously in that you can be fully present to your boy in his experience, which is so different from yours, and present to your own emotional experience and awareness of, oh my gosh, I'm doing it, right? I love that. It's healing to see untroubled joy. Yeah. It just is. I cannot articulate how much I enjoyed watching my son try to do a crossover in new shoes that he couldn't do because his dad bought him some shoes. And he said, thank you, dad. And it was just the rarity of, or even when we go on 
car rides. My oldest is 15, finna turn 16. Got, pray for us because he's driving now. But um, driving around just in the car with him and being able to have conversations. And in some sense, I don't know how to do this. My father was long gone by the time I was 15. I don't know what you ask a 15-year-old. No one asked me anything. And so those complex feelings are both new experiences, but like you said, the past is always with you as you live. Like, I can't escape it, but I try not to pressure them with the responsibilities of undoing all childhood trauma. This holiday season, I am so thrilled to share with you a gift idea that I have personally loved. It's the gift of StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. I gave this gift to my mom last Christmas, and it's just become such a beautiful keepsake. She told us some of these cool, crazy stories from her childhood that we will cherish forever. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their pool of possible options. Each prompt asks questions that maybe you've never asked. Questions like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Or what's a memory from your childhood that you've never shared with anyone? After your StoryWorth will compile all of your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. We love the book that we made out of my mom's stories, and it's just become a gift that keeps on giving for all of us. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash best of you and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash best of you to save $10 on your first purchase. We love our dogs and we love to take them on these long hikes in the mountains where they go for miles. We want them to be healthy for a long time to come. Well, Sundays for Dogs is healthy dog food that's actually easy to store and serve. And this fall, they have a brand new turkey recipe that your dogs are going to love. Sundays is air-dried dog food made from a short list of human-grade ingredients. It's zero prep, zero mess, and zero stress. Unlike other fresh food brands, they don't add in synthetic or artificial vitamins, minerals, or flavors. Their food is naturally complete and balanced. We've worked out a special deal for our dog-loving listeners. You'll get 35% off your first order of Sundays. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash bestofyou or use code bestofyou at checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash bestofyou. Upgrade your pup to Sundays and feel good about the food you feed your dog. Isa, there's so many things I want to ask you in the interest of not using up your whole afternoon. I started to make a list as I was listening. I listened to you read the book, and it's really cool to listen to it in your voice. The different injustices, you've talked about a few that were in your household with your dad, but then you also describe being handcuffed, detail numerous instances of just crazy injustices. And as I'm listening, you know, I'm like, I would be filled with resentment. And I want to touch on, right, like, you're clearly a deep feeler. You're a big thinker. You're engaged. You're in tune. You don't minimize some of these things that happened, but you also don't strike me as someone who is filled with resentments. Yeah, it's hard to write about that portion because I'm trying to strike a particular balance that I think is important for people to learn how to function as believers. And so I didn't want to say the things that happened to me weren't bad. 
And because if you move towards forgiveness or grace too soon, then you can have the impact of minimizing these things, right? There's this point in the Bible where Jesus goes, if I didn't do anything wrong, why did you strike me? When he's being questioned. And he's like, well, no, I need you to know that you know, and I know that what you did for me in this moment was an injustice. And so part of what I wanted to do was to write about those things, right? That those injustices were real and they happened. And one of the tricky things when you start talking about things like this is I think about the different parts of the book. So when people talk about family trauma, it's a little bit less controversial. We can understand that. We can at least empathize. When people talk about racial trauma, they kind of get defensive because they feel like they're convicted somehow. And that the idea of talking about racial trauma and family trauma in a book about finding God feels like that's a distraction. What I want people to understand is if part of my testimony is making sense of the goodness of God in the context of family trauma and anti-Black racism. If I eliminate that portion of the story, then I'm cutting out a significant point of healing that God did in my life. And what happens to a lot of listeners or readers is that they struggle to accept that as a true experience. And so what I wanted to do in the story is to say, these are the things that happened to me so that you understand when I'm wrestling with the idea of God and how God can be good and kind and forgiving and just, I'm wrestling through these particular issues. One of the, my favorite books, C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis. I've talked about him a lot. Is because surprised by joy, though, he's converted in Oxford. And he's dealing with these existential questions. And like literally the greatest literary minds in human history are evangelizing him, right? And so he's like arguing with talking about God. That's not my testimony, right? I didn't come to God in the context of walking around Oxford having these kinds of questions. Intellectually, I'm trying to figure out God in the midst of trauma, anti-Black trauma. And so what I want to say to people is, well, how do you make sense of that? And this may seem to be overly superficial. Only God was there to help. And when I talk about that, I mean that sometimes you can go to college, get education, you learn, read all of these books, you learn about all of these critiques of Christianity and all of the ways in which God can be good, and you start relitigating your past. But I can say the people who were encouraging me to set aside my spiritual values weren't actually there when I was suffering. They were there to convince me that God was there in my suffering later on. And so what I want to say is that in the midst of those things, who was the person who was my comfort? And who were the people who were there who were helping me? I didn't have a dad, but I had a bunch of people who were men in my life from my church who cared about me, who prayed for me, who listened to me complain. And so part of it was simply the presence of God is the reason that I survived. Another reason is to say that it was the people around me who loved and cared about me. And as to like why... I might not be as bitter. I'll put it this way. I don't think that we're always immediately ready to tell our stories. Sometimes we go through things and we just survive them. And the only testimony we have is that God helped us survive them. And so there's stuff in the book that I didn't talk about publicly ever. Because for a long time in my life, all I could say is I survived it. And I think sometimes you get to a place where the stories no longer control you, but you control them. And once you have control of those stories, you can then redeploy them for the sake of healing and for God's glory. I think about this a lot. I don't know if she ever listens to these podcasts, but I mentioned her a couple of times. One of my heroes is, is, is Rachel Denhollander. And Rachel went through a trauma that she now talks about for the sake of helping other people. Yes. It doesn't mean that every trauma survivor can do that or they're required to do it. For some people, that's too difficult. And for every person, it's a cost, right? Every interview costs a trauma survivor something to tell their story. But for those of us who feel comfortable that they are in a place spiritually where they can tell that story, we can begin to use those stories for God's glory. And so I'm at the point now in my life 
that I can tell those stories without bitterness. And I can see the ways which use this story to help people live healthier and fuller lives. But that wasn't where I always was. I was like to give people time to say, maybe in the grace of God, you might get to a point one day where your story is not something simply that you survived, but there's something that you can actually use for the glory of God. Not that God caused it or anything like that, but you can use it. And there's things that aren't in the book because I'm not ready to tell those stories. People think, why'd you do a memoir? I said, well, hold on. It's 60,000 words. (laughs) Like these are like 10 or 15 stories, right? These are the ones I felt comfortable sharing with people. And there's other stories that I'm still trying to make sense of as a believer. And maybe in the future, I'll be able to tell those stories, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, I love that. I love what you're saying. It's complex. There's different moments that I work through resentments in my life even now. We were talking with Kurt Thompson a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about some resentments he was working through. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting, right? That I wouldn't talk about at this point because they're very real. I could certainly tell you something about 20 years ago. There are two or three things that I can't talk about them. And this happened like In the last three to five years, I think that the pandemic was harder than everybody. But the last five to 10 years of my life, a lot of things have happened that I haven't processed yet. And when I speak about them, I still feel the emotion. And so I don't talk about them. There's a reason why, like, basically, the events of the book all end in 2017, effectively. That's where you were ready to... Where I'm ready. Um, And so that was one portion. We'll see if I'm ever able to write about what happened after that. Tell me those moments when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, maybe as a young man... I love how you said God was there with me. There were a few people that broke through the, I think you used the word uncomplicated joy to describe your son. So for you, it was complicated. There was a lot of complicated. But where were those moments, those glimmers we talk about in psychology, where something broke through, whether it was through the Holy Spirit, whether through a human, where you were like, I want more of that. I think a part of it was my mom, who played a tremendous role in my childhood. And I think it can be really difficult to talk about my mom because, once again, there are other people who had great moms who ended up under different circumstances. I talk about that in the book, but for this sake, I can say this. She could imagine a future for her children that was not rooted in our circumstances. That was a deep conviction that she had from God, that God had better plans for us. Even when we didn't believe it, we believed that she believed it. And so that was one of those things that carried us up. One of the things that the language of the book is like, how far to the promised land? And one of the things that I realized is that, in some sense, my mom's home was the promised land. It's this place of safety. Even before we arrived, it was like this kind of, within the context of poverty and suffering and anti-Black racism, my mom said, you're not going to let these people tell you who you are. And I tell you this one time where she worked for the school board, so she'll go across town, and then she'd come back from across town. Because we lived in the Black part of town, and the school board is always in the white part of town. She had friends over there. And so she would say, man, they said that you all couldn't learn, that you couldn't think, that you guys are nothing but a bunch of animals. Is that true? Is that true? What they're saying about you true? Because if that's true, then I've failed as a parent. And for me, that was it. And one of the other things, I don't know if I talked about this in the book, but it was our church that week in and week out, the pastor would preach with such an urgency. Because I think he knew that life and death was actually the decision that we had to make each week. And I had this running joke where I was like, okay, we were in church every Sunday. The door was open. We was there. And so I would say, I'm coming to church. And if the pastor preaches a good sermon, I'll be a Christian for another week and I won't sin. If he preaches a bad sermon, I'm in the streets. (laughs) So it was like a week-to-week thing. And it's actually influenced like how I think about preaching. Because I know what it's like to walk into church on a Sunday with every desire not to have hope. 
and to have someone will me to hope for a little bit longer. And I wanted to say that they did that more often than not. And even when I thought it wasn't doing its work, that like I'm kind of pushing these things off, they were somewhere inside of me doing their work. And in the fullness of time, it bore fruit. Isa, one of the things that I'm really interested in, the topic of my first book is this idea that we have an internal family of parts. It's a model of therapy that we're complex. We have different parts of us. And it helped me a lot being someone who has lived in a lot of different parts of the country. Like I said, grew up in rural Wyoming, ended up at an Ivy League school in New England where I felt like a complete misfit. I think about you reading your memoir. You even talk about the different parts of you, right? That these stories, then you do find your way to St. Andrews where you're studying with N.T. Wright. And yet you carry with you all of these former selves. And I'm very interested in that. I think especially as trauma survivors, those things don't go away, these parts of us, and we don't want them to. What's that like for you? Talk to me a little bit about how you bring all of these parts of you so that you feel like your whole self wherever you are. Well, I think that's actually a really good question because for a long time, I don't think that I did that very well. I think that there was this idea that in order to get to college, I had to be someone else. Yeah. And then the, they teach you who they want you to be at university. So then you become that person. And then I go into, you know, I, I leave the South and I go into graduate school in New England. And then we eventually go to Japan because my wife is in the military. Then we go from Japan eventually over to Scotland and I'm running. And when you're in the rat race, right, when you're running towards something, you can kind of like it's almost like your bags were checked before the departure and you're flying without the bags. But eventually you land <laughs> wherever you're going and all the bags come back. Right. Yes, that's good. And so at a certain point. I arrived, right? And this is what 2017 is. I arrived in the place where I was supposed to be. And then all of the bags showed up. And I realized that I wasn't happy being the version of the person who they wanted me to be. That it actually felt stifling. And that I was going to lose my mind unless I let everybody come back. And so part of my writing is my journey to reintegrate myself. And so I have to be someone who grew up in the Black church. That's just a part of who I am. I'm someone who fell in love with the liturgy and I love the sacraments. That's just a part of who I am. I'm someone who loves the Bible. I'm a Bible professor. That's a part of who I am. But I'm just a writer, right? I'm a mess of stuff. I've talked about this. Like I have five books in five different genres. Because <laughs> like I'm just interested in different things. And so I am always trying to say now, only in the last three to five years, how can I be who God made me to be? instead of the person people wanted me to be. And you want to say, like, how did you do it? I said, I think I have to do it to keep my sanity. Reading While Black, my first book that you all know about, was my Declaration of Independence. It was saying, I have to be a Christian this way or I can't do it at all. And that's not true. I'm going to be a Christian this way. It wasn't, or no, not at all. I'm saying, like, I can't be anything other than who God called me to be. And how about the promised land is the story in a sense of journeying towards becoming that person. And so I guess I want to say, I think there's a lot of people who get to a place in life where they have the things that they want, but the cost is too high. And I felt like the cost of not being myself was so high, I had to integrate them back so that I wouldn't lose myself. And so I try now to be utterly myself for the sake of my own spiritual, emotional, and mental health, which means that the people who like the version of me, the version I knew how to perform for them— may not like me as much anymore. And that's okay. Reach it. I love it. That's so much of what we talk about here on the podcast, right? Is this internal integration, this integrity. It's not just emotional. It's a spiritual process. 
I'm curious because you talk a little bit in the book about what you're saying, how I kind of knew the person I needed to be to fit into whatever setting. And so was writing the book helpful to you? Writing the story, I would imagine, helpfully and kind of pulling in the different threads. And I mean, I think that everybody should write a memoir. Not everybody should publish one, but everybody should write one. Yeah. Because what I realized is there are stories that happen to you. They just kind of exist in your head that you return to over and over again, but aren't actually integrated in your life. They just regrets that visit you like Ghost of Christmas Past, right? And like, they're just unresolved because when they occurred, you didn't say what you wanted to say. Like there were things that were happening. And what I figured out in writing this book was, and this is like a glorious, I wasn't expecting it, is that I can't undo the past. Can't undo the past. What happened, happened. But I can actually end the past. I can write a conclusion, not to like, redo it. I can say, okay, I didn't say this. I didn't do this. And I regret it. And I wish that I had. And had I had the wisdom, I would have done this. And so what I've discovered in writing this book is it actually helped me in the process of integrating different parts of myself. And it helped me the final chapters when I dealt with the story of my father and in our final interactions with one another. That was, I think, some of my best writing that I think I've ever written in my life because it was honest. And I realized that the things that I said at the time that I believed that I actually believed, it's hard to say, but like, I said, oh, that's actually true. Like, it's one thing to say you forgive someone and to kind of feel it at the moment, but there was something in the sense of, in the context of writing the book that I processed all of the forgiveness that I had articulated. And so for me, it was tremendously healing. And one of the other interesting things about it is like, there's been no other sermon in my life that I wrote and then I revisited six years later. So the book is framed around the eulogy. And the last chapter contains actual words that I wrote seven years ago. So to return to that text again and to say, yeah, I actually believe this stuff. The real account of what happened is true. One of the weird things is I've had people who reached out to me since I wrote the book to say, oh, I knew your dad. Because the book kind of concludes, I don't want to give it too much away. He ends up at Oak Cliff Bible Church where Tony Evans is the pastor. And it was a big church that's influential with me as well. And I ran into someone online who said that my dad was in the Bible study that he talked about in the book. He said, oh, I led that Bible study with your dad. And he used to talk about you after church all of the time. And I was like, I didn't even know that. And so maybe you put a book out into the world and you find out stuff that you didn't know. Yeah. Dan Allender talks about narrative being so important to healing from trauma. And it's what you're saying. It's telling the story over and over and over. It's why we need stories. We're telling the story of our lives, trying to piece together the threads. And as we grow, as we mature, we pull in new threads and we start to see it a little bit different. We see a few more contours. And so I think you're on to something when you say, and even just the research on journaling, right? Just putting, you know, for those of you listening, telling your story, retelling your story. And, and if it's painful, as I'm sure there are painful spots where you're like, whoa, I'm not sure I'm ready to tell that story. Just notice that. That's okay. You don't have to publicize it. There might be a time when you're ready to do that, such as you said, but I think you're really saying something profound, telling our stories, revisiting the stories, adding chapters to the stories. And you'll know one of the things that is also interesting, I'm glad you talked about this. Sometimes you don't know that you're still angry about stuff until you start trying to talk about it. And you realize like, oh man, this really still bothers me. Did you find some of that when you were writing it? There's a chapter called Fleeing the South. Yeah. Where I talk about the police encounters that I had. Yeah. And it's the final police encounter that I had when I'm driving from my hometown back to my university. And the police officer pulls us over. We're in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. And he says, I'm pulling you over for a sudden change in speed. 
And we had gone from like 55 to 35 because of the speed trap. That's why we changed speed suddenly. It's like the sheer ridiculousness of it. You can feel it now. It's coming out of my voice. Like the sheer ridiculousness of this thing. But we're in the middle of nowhere. So I can't say to him, oh, you shouldn't pull me over because what am I going to do? And then he asked, there's two of us in the car. He asked for my license and the license of the person next to me. And because we told him we're going to college, we're going back to campus, he asked for our student IDs. Which is like, there's no law in America that says you have to prove that you go to the college. But once again, we are at the mercy of law enforcement in the middle of nowhere. So we have to do whatever he says. And you talk about how your mom had taught you. She told me to do it, right? But, and I talk about this, like the idea of the fear, the confluence of bad days. One of the things that was really, God was gracious to me, is that every time the police officer was having a bad day, and he was taking it out upon me, I was not having a bad day. I was emotionally in control. And so when he's calling us, even though we're 22 years old, he's calling us, boy, you boys go back to campus. Well, the person in me who wants respect wants to say, like, who are you calling a boy? Like, that's what I wanted to say, right? But I know if I say that, it escalates the situation. And I had this fear, this real genuine fear of what happens when my bad day and their bad day occur on the same day. And so that was one of those things that, like, took me out of the South. Maybe I can say this. One of the things that's been really interesting about the last five years for me, I've written so much about the South. Like, this book is set entirely in the South. Reading My Black deals with a lot of the South. And I felt a little bit of sadness that I had to leave a place that I loved because it had broken my heart. And so in the context of me writing that section of the book, I was like, man, I love the South. I'm so mad that they made me leave, you know? And so I felt that there was still a little bit of me that's still processing that particular trauma. Yeah, I love that. Again, the power of going back. It's like pressing on an old bruise a little bit, and maybe it's no longer a gaping wound, but there's still some emotion there. Thank you for the work that you put into that. It's amazing. Thank you. When it comes to my own health journey, I've just found that I need a specialized touch. There's just a couple of complicated things going on, and I really need someone to stick with me in the details. Everyone is so unique, which is why I'm so excited to introduce you to today's sponsor, Wild Health. Wild Health uses your genetics, your biometrics, and your lifestyle data to help you determine what your body needs as far as nutrition, exercise, sleep, supplements, and more so you can function at your best now and in the long run. In fact, Wild Health can determine if you have elevated levels that can contribute to a wide range of current or potential issues from brain fog or drowsiness during your busy work day to microbiome and gut health issues to indicators for diabetes or prediabetes. I love my Wild Health coach. She is amazing. She is kind. She is smart. She has great interventions that help me every single week. Wild Health is generously extending Best of You listeners 20% off the cost of membership with code Best of You. Head over to wildhealth.com slash best of you and use code Best of You at checkout. Make this commitment to yourself and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash best of you. Getting high quality food and household essentials delivered right to my doorstep, whether it's my favorite Dave's Killer Bread, incredible wine, or seventh generation cleaning supplies has been a game changer for me. I love that Thrive Market only allows trusted top quality ingredients while restricting thousands of harmful ingredients like artificial flavors, high fructose corn syrup, and more. And with just a few clicks, I can filter out ingredients that I don't want, like gluten or high sugar content, making it so easy to find the items I need for my family. Best of all, when you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. 
Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash bestofyou for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash bestofyou. Thrivemarket.com slash bestofyou. I feel like really quickly, the world has in some sense moved in a way from my discipline to your discipline. And this might seem like a strange way of putting it. I'm not saying we don't care about the Bible. I know you do Bible and theology and psychology. I know you do them both. What I'm saying is I was abroad when I came back to the States in 2016, 2017. There was a question is what does the Bible say about these topics? And I feel like now the question is, given my trauma, can I trust God? And what I was trying to do was to say, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you a prescription of what to do, but maybe seeing the life of someone who went through difficult things and who came out on the other side as someone who still has a robust trust in the goodness of God gives you as the reader a chance to have that same confidence. And I feel like both of those things are necessary. Like, in other words, I think that we need practical tools to help us process like the complexities of life. Forgive me for rambling on about this, but like, I remember thinking Christianity ought to be easy by now. You know, when I was a kid, I thought you get married, you have kids, you got to rinse and repeat until you die. And it's hard and you live long enough and people who you really put your trust in, this breaks your heart. So how do you follow God after that? And I feel like the work that you and others are doing to help us process these things and to think about how we might function as Christians, this is beyond my competence to be prescriptive. But what I could do and how far to the promised land is be descriptive and hope that people can find that useful. Gosh, that's beautiful. I really think what you and I do, and this is why I, I was starting to be a psychologist. You know, it's Augustine. I can't study the soul without studying God. You can't study God without studying the soul. So what you and I do is two sides of the same coin. I lead with the psychology. And a lot of what I lead with is, okay, so Jesus says forgive. How do I forgive somebody who has never asked for forgiveness, who has never even owned, which you have plenty of in your life? How do I forgive somebody who has asked for forgiveness but has really, really hurt me? How do I build trust again? You touch on that. I mean, you go down, every single one of those is in your story. And I want to hear your theology about that too, but I want to hear more about it after I've heard your story because I'm like, oh, dang, right? It's just part of the human nature. So I'm glad that you learned the secret because there's a bunch of ways into the book. But the way into the book that you capture the most of what's going on is a long meditation on forgiveness. <laughs> That's how I took it. And so, I mean, I've said this before, but this is like the secret sauce of understanding what's going on in the book. The book opens up. The first thing that you actually read is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, we love this story. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thinks he's perfect. He says, God, I'm glad I'm not like this other guy. And then the tax collector goes... God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And we love that story. Oh, we love it. Because we can say no matter what you did, God can forgive you and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, well, hold on for a second. What if the tax collector had come to your house and he had taken the last bit of money that you had to pay for your kids' food? And now the tax collector has robbed you and your kids are starving. And what if the tax collector did that over 20 years? Basically, he was a terror to his community, destroying lives wherever he went. That's what the tax collector was. And I want to promise you, that the Jewish people who were around that tax collector were not rooted for his forgiveness. And when the tax collector converted and came back home, I'm pretty sure people were like, I'm not sure I want to kick with this guy, which is why people didn't want to mess with Paul in the Bible, right? It took Barnabas. And so the question I wanted to say is like, what happens then if I'm trying to process, in effect, what a tax collector-like character did for me? Because my father does have a turning at the end, right? But the turning at the end 
doesn't undo the 25 to 30 years of trauma that he caused. And so that process of saying, I am glad the tax collector converted or repented is not as simple as we hear it in the story when we're actually a part of it. And so one way to read the How Far to the Promised Land book is to say, what happens to the child of the tax collector? whose life is forever changed by the decision of his father. I don't go too deep in the Bible, but I'll say a little bit more. One of the things about tax collectors is they were shunned by their community, and oftentimes that shunning extended to their family. So you can imagine, if the tax collector was the one who was robbing all of the families, you think people want to play with the kid of the tax collector? No. So the kid finds himself isolated. So you know what that means? He's often stuck in that same life of his father. Creates generational trauma. And so it's passed down. And so the tax collector's son, his entire life, even the opulence that he has, is probably rooted in what he knows the suffering of the people around him. Now, it's not a direct analogy because my father doesn't enrich our family by his actions. He makes us poor. But in the same way that everything that happens to me in the book is set in motion by my father's failure, it's similar to what the tax collector did in the communities around him. And so you get to the end and you say, yes, I'm glad that he repented. That's a journey. And the book chronicles both that journey and the chaos that was caused in my life by his departure. Yeah, I think it's Bonhoeffer right who talks about cheap grace. This is costly grace, costly forgiveness. There's cost to it. And also there's redemption in it as you're made whole through your own journey as well. This is where things get like really tricky because this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Because I had to own my own actual need for grace. Yeah. Ugh. If you want to know like the how-to, you actually have to believe that you need the doctrines of grace. And what I mean by that is the difference between saying like I like grace, grace is a good comfort that helps me, even though I think I'm 90% a Christian and only need God to do 10% of the work because I'm pretty good. But we say, no, no, no. I actually need the grace of God to function as a Christian. And that I'm not just someone who's a victim, which I am, but that in other ways I've also hurt and wounded other people. And the forgiveness I want to be available to me, in theory, I have to extend to other people. And so it's only when you own, in a deep way, God's grace and ability to forgive you, that you can actually hope that God forgives someone else, even if you don't benefit from it. So in other words, I got to the point where I no longer needed, I couldn't have the father that I wanted as a child because I was an adult now. I wasn't wishing for that. What I could say is, I genuinely hope for a better ending for his story than someone who abandoned his family and then died alone. So forgiveness wasn't reconciliation. It was actually hope. Hope that even if I never get anything out of it, I hope that this person finds him or herself before the end. That's so powerful. It's so nuanced. There's so much nuance to it. I think people say like, what's this book about? It's just about life. and Life is complicated. So don't ask me to say it in a sentence. <laughs> It's a beautiful memoir. It is complex. That thread of forgiveness, you just move through it and not easily, but you walk us through it. And it's so worth the read. One of the questions we ask, and you touched on this, is what's bringing out the best of you right now? How would you answer that? I think that right now, two things. One of them is like my family. I told my wife last night, I said, I realized yesterday I was on a walk with my dog. I said, people don't actually pay me to come and speak. I would do that part for free. People pay me to leave my family. If you invite me to come somewhere, you're actually paying me to not be with these people whom I love and whom I care about. And so, like, because I just enjoy being with my wife. It sounds lame. I enjoy being with my wife and kids. And they bring me real joy. Like, I think that you're amazing. Like my wife and kids better. And so, like... I love it. So, like, what's bringing the best out of me is it is a privilege to watch a life unfold before you. And that's what you have in the family. It's an intense community watching a life unfold. 
So I would say right now, my children and my wife are bringing me real and great and lasting joy. And I also say that I'm really enjoying the writing process. Writing is an act of creation. And I don't know how other people write. And half the time, I don't know what I'm going to say when I, I have like a vague idea. And the thrill of putting together sentences and paragraphs and those kinds of things. And it's the joy of anticipated joy for someone else. Sometimes I write stuff, I, say, I think this is really going to help someone. They're going to like this line. They're going to like the way these words function. And it gives me joy. And to be honest, don't tell anybody, this between me and you. Like for fun, at night I've been working on a fiction book. And that's been like the thing that I've been doing for the last about a month or so. Is thinking about what kind of fiction book might I write. I'm doing more biblical scholarship. Don't yell at me, people who say, when you're going to do the Bible. But I'm working on my next book of biblical theology. And I'm also working on a fiction book. It's actually a trilogy. We'll put that to the side. I'm not saying on the podcast that it has to be real. That's right. I'm working on a fantasy series. It's public accountability. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all you poured into this beautiful book. Your books are amazing. I'd say read both. And whichever, you know, if you're someone who wants the biblical theological version, read Reading While Black first. If you need the lived story to go, I need to know this person's going to relate to my suffering and what I've been through before I trust his theology, read the memoir first. I'm not saying I'm like C.S. Lewis. Remember they talked about the order of Chronicles of Nardia? So if I were the reader, I would read How Far to the Promised Land first and then read about Black, even though they were published differently. But How Far to the Promised Land is the introduction to everything. Yeah, it is. It's the prequel. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Esau, for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of The Best of You. It would mean so much if you take a moment to subscribe. You can go to Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click the plus or follow button. That will ensure you don't miss an episode and it helps get the word out to others. While you're there, I'd love it if you leave your five-star review. I look forward to seeing you back here next Thursday. And remember, as you become the best of who you are, you honor God, you heal others, and you stay true to your God-given self.